This is a podcast from the Department of War Studies, King's College London. To find out more, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash war studies. Welcome to the War Studies podcast recorded on the 24th of January 2014. I'm Peter Bush. Two topics today. We are going to hear from Dr. Reynud Linders on the Syria negotiations that began earlier this week. And we also have an interview with Sir David Omand on electronic surveillance. This conversation with Sir David was recorded before a major panel discussion, which was hosted here in the department by the Research Center in International Relations. The panel was chaired by Professor Vivian Jabri, and apart from David Omand, Professor Didier Bigot and Ben Emerson QC took part. This panel discussion should be available on our YouTube channel soon. But first of all, Jane Peake is here to tell us more about next week's events. Hi, Jane. Hello. Next week, we have three events. The first one is on the 28th of January at one o'clock in the War Studies meeting room. Richard Ned Lebeau will be talking on ontological insecurity. And he's a professor here in the War Studies department. Um, he's a professor of international political theory. Also on the same day we have the War Studies annual lecture which is being given by Mark Urban who is the diplomatic editor for BBC Two's Newsnight and he'll be talking on war and the British media. That's in the Edmund J. Safra Lecture Theatre at 6.30. And this one will be live tweeted so if you can't make that you can follow us on hashtag WSLive. Yes, and the final event is on the 29th of January, which is the spread of Islamist movements across West Africa and the Sahel. That's being given by Virginia Kamoli, who is Research Associate for Transnational Threats at IISS. It's being hosted by the African Studies Research Group. It's in the War Studies meeting room at six o'clock. Thanks a lot and see you next week. See you next week. Dr. Reynold Linders is a reader in international politics and Middle East studies in the department. His research interests cover Iraq, Lebanon and Syria. And I met him to talk about the Syria negotiations that began earlier this week. Uh, many people don't expect much from the Syria talks that have just begun, but what could be the outcome or the progress out of it? Well, I think it may sound a bit counterintuitively, but um, the regime uh, will undoubtedly be the, uh, the target of much accusations of uh, human rights violations and the violence it has been using uh, in, the, in, the, in the civil war. Uh, but in fact, um, what could happen is that the Syrian regime might actually take this as an opportunity to kind of uh, regain its position in the international community as a, as a a partner in a process uh, and, and therefore no longer anymore the regime that had, uh, had to be removed as many countries uh, have been arguing for uh, over more than two years now. Um, so in addition of um, becoming a partner in a disarmament uh, process with regards to serious chemical weapons, um, this might be the next step and the regime could now present itself as a, as a useful partner in the, in the fight against uh, terrorism uh, and, and so on. 
So in spite of all these demands that Assad has to go, there could be something positive for him on the kind of the conference table. Well, I think he's uh, he's he's already uh, uh, I think benefiting from the situation. Um, mind you, he was one of the first ones that um, who accepted to to go to G Geneva or Montreux uh, without uh, preconditions, as they put it. Uh, but at the same time, ruling out that this uh, could lead to his uh, his his exit from power. But meanwhile, the uh, the opposi Syrian opposition in exile, uh, they were the ones that uh, looked like they were balking and uh, putting conditions and, uh, and it put them into disarray. So yes, I think the, the regime is, uh, is already benefiting. What could be a possible solution? Well, I must say I, I've been running, I'm running out of, of, of ideas. Uh, up to, uh, say, the autumn of 2012, I think it was still uh, possible um, to, uh, to, to, to send military support to the Free Syrian Army and the groups associated with it. I think we've gone long beyond this uh, stage now with the, the rising prominence of jihadist Salafist uh, groups. Um, uh, at the same time, the regime is making uh, quite a bit of uh, significant milita military progress the, in, and, um, and is, is, is definitely hoping that in the course of time uh, the, um, the, the cards will turn back into its favour. What do you see as the possible biggest danger in the long run? I think in the long run uh, the, 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 the biggest danger is already uh, uh, emerging and that is, uh, is, is uh, well first of all for Syria a protracted conflict with mass casu casualties and, uh, and unimaginable uh, human suffering. Uh, but what could happen more so than it does already is a, is a spillover of the conflict to neighboring countries and uh, there are already worrisome signs of that happening in, uh, in neighboring Lebanon particularly. And finally, Iran isn't present at the conference. Is this, does this going to have a major impact? Well, I think the, uh, the, it has a symbolic impact in the sense that they were at last minute uh, disinvited and uh, very likely under heavy U.S. pressure, and and that could be seen as a as a kind of symbolic victory for the Syrian National Coalition that also refused to have Iran uh, there in uh, uh, during the talks. Um, it would have been better if they would have been present, because if you like it or not, they are a big player in the um, uh, in in the in the war in support of the regime. Uh, but I don't think uh, it, it, it basically adds a, a layer of failure of a, of a, on, on a conference that, that this was likely to fail anyway. Thanks a lot. And this interview is also available on our YouTube channel if you want to watch it there. Sir David Oman is a visiting professor in the department and of course a former director of GCHQ. His research interests include the development of national security strategy and counter-terrorism strategy, intelligence studies and the relationship of the media and national intelligence. Before Sir David took part in a panel discussion organized by the RCIR, we talked about his views on the future of intelligence services like the NSA in the light of President Obama's latest speech. I began by asking him what he expected from the panel discussion. Well, I hope this evening's panel is going to look at some of the issues behind the recent revelations. I hope we won't spend too much time arguing about 
about uh, the revelations themselves or Mr Snowden, but really about what are the implications of all of this and what happens in the future. How do we take this forward? What sort of constraints does society want to place on intelligence activity, if any? So what kind of constraints would you put on intelligence activity? At the moment, the constraints are set here in the UK by UK law, uh, which actually puts a limit on the kind of information that can be gathered, purposes for which it can be gathered. National security, for example, or uh, detection and prevention of serious crime. Do we want to add further restrictions? Uh, President Obama, in his recent statement, said that uh, the National Security Agency would not collect information uh, for the purposes of the commercial advantage of US companies. Now, that is already the case, I think, in the UK. But should somebody say that? Should we actually write that into the law? One of the purposes that is authorised is what's called economic well-being, which has to be associated in some way with national security. And the judges have made it pretty clear that they would expect there to be a national security justification. But that would cover, for example, somebody using cyberspace to try and take down you know, the London markets or to destabilise trading. It wouldn't cover uh, commercial espionage. So maybe that's an area where it would be worth having some international discussions. But these discussions, other discussions about general privacy laws, you think that they are fine as they are? Well, we have a very regulated system in the UK. It's different in quite major respects from that in the US. But we have a regulated system. Uh, we have systems of warrants. Uh, it's overseen by judges. I'm not sure I want to see any more apparatus put onto it. Uh, somebody, and I think it'll have to be the parliamentary committee because they've got access to, in confidence to all the uh, security details of what is actually going on. Somebody needs to have a hard look at whether in the light of the advent of, say, social media, the law is clear enough. Um, I suspect they'll find that the law is quite unambiguous but it's never been properly explained. And anyone who's tried to read British legislation will know that it's often quite difficult to actually understand what it means because it cross-refers to other legislation and amends some bits of other statutes and adds other things. So it's really quite difficult for the general public. So what one needs is common-sense guides of the kind you would write for a police officer or an intelligence officer, and then make them public, saying this is what you're allowed to do under the law, these are the things you can't do, this is where you need to seek authority uh, at different levels for different kinds of intrusion. And that would probably help restore a little bit of public confidence. So why exactly do you think then was this public confidence lost if the overall legal system seems to be working, as you uh, imply? I think... Probably two reasons. One is because most of us, particularly the older generations, which I now include myself, 
uh, haven't necessarily kept up with everything that's going on in the internet. And therefore discovering, for example, that in order to find the communication of a terrorist suspect, it's necessary to dive deep into the huge bulk of the internet and collect vast amounts of material in order to extract the, the one needle from the haystack. I think that came as a bit of a surprise to people. People hadn't realised that packet switch networks mean that communications could turn up anywhere. They don't necessarily take a straight line from A to B. Um, they could go around the other side of the world if that's the cheaper route for the computers to direct the, the, the message. So there's a certain amount of sort of catching up going on. I think that's one reason why people were slightly surprised. The other reason, I have to say, is because it's been presented by the media and the civil liberties lobby in a very tendentious way. And they've made a fundamental concept error, um, the, the category error in confusing mass surveillance with bulk access to the internet. And they're quite different concepts. They may or may not be related, but they are different. So, for example, uh, President Obama has now, for the first time, admitted that the US engages in bulk collection from the internet and has defended it, rightly, in my view, because that's what's necessary in an internet age. But that's not mass surveillance. Mass surveillance is when the population or a large section of the population is actually under observation. And it isn't, certainly isn't in the United Kingdom. There are no rooms filled with people down in GCHQ monitoring the communications of the British public. Um, but what they have got is big plug-ins to the giant uh, internet pipes and the transatlantic cables so that they can comb through them looking for the material that they're authorised to look for, which are essentially the bad guys, potentially hostile foreign states, you know, what is President Assad up to, what's happened to those chemical weapons, where is the next terrorist attack coming, uh, the jihadists who've gone to Syria, how many of them have returned? There are lots of questions that governments and um, police services want answered. And you have to go out there and get the answers. That's different from mass surveillance. So it's not about the existence of these tools. And that's where I think the, so many commentators have gone astray because they've been amazed and by, the, by the volume and the size. It's, 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 it's not about volume and size. It's about which human beings are authorised to look at any of this material for what purpose. And that's the bit I want very tightly laid down and constrained, not you know, giving them the tools to actually access it. And maybe the last question when you say purpose, and you mentioned foreign states as well, or bad states, or, or the evildoers, or whoever, that's probably something that the public wants and would support anyway. But uh, from my German perspective, of course, if you then uh, read uh, that uh, even friendly politicians uh, are not off limits, that's of course a certain intention and purpose that makes some people wonder where are really the limits or where are the boundaries if you even spy on your friends, for example. I think perfectly valid point, but I have to point out it has nothing whatever to do with the, uh, uh, the reasons why Mr Snowden became a whistleblower or, or, or stole all this material. Uh, 
It's got nothing to do with mass surveillance. What I read in the media about uh, the espionage operation on Angela Merkel, and I only know what's in the newspapers, is that it was highly targeted, operated out of the American embassy in Berlin. Um, a classic intelligence operation of a kind that has gone on in different forms ever since states were created. Now, the question there is not, is, is really about whose authority is needed before states engage in espionage activity. Uh, what criteria do they use? And are you satisfied there is proper authorization? What you can't do is have kind of no spy pacts. They're unverifiable and probably meaningless. And if you look at European history over the last hundred years, there would have been occasions on which previously very friendly states would suddenly want to know about each other. And you can go around the European Union and you can find pairs of states who might at some future date be suspicious of each other's intentions. So I don't think you can rule this out. What I would demand is firstly that any such activity is authorised at the highest possible level. In the case of the United Kingdom, it would have to be the Foreign Secretary himself or the Prime Minister. Nobody else could authorise an operation against a, a foreign, uh, friendly uh, foreign government. And there would have to be an enormously good reason, uh, an overwhelming reason, why anyone would take the political risk uh, of, as it were, trust betrayed if this became public, in order to do that. Now, when you look at the American case, I think the president has made pretty clear that it wasn't authorised at the highest level and he didn't, doesn't really think this kind of thing is justified. But he hasn't ruled it out for some future circumstance. And I think a wise government in a wise state would not be seeking agreements across Europe that you don't spy on each other. They would be seeking assurance that the intelligence agencies of each European state are properly controlled and authorised and operate broadly to the same ethical standards. Once you've done that, then I think you've achieved the major purpose. Thanks a lot, and I hope you're going to enjoy the panel discussion. I'm sure I am, and I'm glad King's College is laying it on. And the whole panel debate should be available on our YouTube channel soon. This was the War Studies podcast recorded on 24th of January 2014. I'm Peter Bush. Thanks for listening.